welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, James and I chat with Ben Edgington, lead product manager for Teku, an ETH2 client. He walks us through the ETH2 timeline and how the ideas around this massive upgrade to the network have evolved. We chat about the plan to merge the ETH2 proof-of-stake system with the existing ETH network and how these two chains will work together going forward. We also look at how L2s could potentially interact with this new setup. Now, before we start off, I want to share a quick tip to anyone who's thinking of jumping into the ZK space professionally. We actually have a ZK jobs board on the website. There you can find new opportunities to work for some of the best ZK projects in the space. I also want to remind you to sign up for the monthly newsletter ZK Mesh for all the latest on ZK research articles, tools, and tips. We send this out at the beginning of every month. So that's the ZK Jobs Board on the website or ZK Mesh. And I've added the link to both in the show notes. This week's episode is brought to you by Mina, the world's lightest blockchain. It is a project deep in the ZK space and one that I am currently advising. Also, the Zero Knowledge Validator is actually a validator on Mina. Now, Mina is a layer one crypto protocol that replaces the traditional blockchain with a zero knowledge proof, ensuring a super light and constant size chain that allows participants to quickly sync and verify the network. Mina offers a platform to build a private gateway between the real world and crypto. The project has an active demo in partnership with Teller Finance for end-to-end data privacy, showing how you can use Mina to access your credit score and prove that you meet credit threshold requirements for on-chain services without ever disclosing your actual score. This is an amazing example of the power of zero-knowledge proofs. Visit minaprotocol.com to find out how you can get involved and be sure to join the community there. So thank you again, Mina Protocol. Now here is our conversation all about ETH2 with Ben Edgington. So today, James and I are here with Ben Edgington. We're going to be talking about the state of Ethereum. I'm not going to say ETH2. I hear that there's some conversation about like what is and what is not ETH2, what is and what is not Ethereum. Hopefully we can jump into that. But welcome to the show, Ben. Thank you, Anna. Thank you, James. Uh, I am honoured to be here. Long-term fan. Really enjoy your your output. It's great. Thanks. Oh, thanks so much. (laughs) So I know I keep referencing this, but we're coming off of this like six-part L2 series that James was part of most of that. So it was basically through that series we start, I mean, I started to realize like I'm completely out of the loop on what's going on on the base level. I know that we had uh, Danny Ryan on last year, maybe two years ago, talking about the ETH2 roadmap. I've had a few people on maybe last year that gave hints of it, but I think this is the first time in a long time that we're going to be digging into the state of Ethereum. And having read some of the stuff you've been writing, I feel like you're the perfect person to do this. That's very kind. I don't know about perfect, but um, (laughs) I can certainly help guide you through the maze and you can be forgiven for not being up to date because things have evolved, things have changed. um, And uh, yeah, it'd be good to talk through some of that. Cool. To start off, let's hear a little bit about you. Kind of what was your journey to Ethereum? 
in the first place? <laughs> uh, well, where to start? I had a very <laughs> conventional career um, to a degree. Uh, so I studied mathematics at Cambridge, spent seven years there, somehow managed not to emerge with a PhD, um, but three master's <laughs> degrees. Um, they they tried to teach me um, group theory, and I was highly resistant, um, which I regret now very much as I'm catching up now. I spent three years at University of Reading uh, working on sort of supercomputer implementations of weather models, that kind of stuff. And that got me into the high-performance computing thing. I went and worked for Hitachi, um, mm. the massive Japanese multinational. First 10 years or so working on supercomputers and then branching out, doing a lot of fintech stuff, data center stuff, and healthcare and all sorts of crazy things, biometrics. Did you actually um, work in Japan? I visited Japan many, many times, but I, I never spent more than uh, a month or so at a time uh, okay. in Japan. I love Japan. It's, it is a I know James loves place. it too. <laughs> I am a huge fan of Japan. Uh, we did live there for a couple of years. Oh, wonderful. I envy you. It's great. Yeah, so I spent 19 years at Itachi, had a very conventional career, wore a suit and tie uh, every day, ended up moderately senior, head of engineering for a group um, working in sort of fintech stuff in the UK with you know, territory was uh, Europe, Middle East, Africa, North America, traveling the world. But um, yeah, it just got to a point where I it wasn't you know, writing spreadsheets and doing budgets and, and hiring plans was just not intellectually stimulating. So I, I uh, there just came a point where our salespeople were coming back and saying, all our clients want to talk about is something called blockchain. Um, this was early mm. 2016. Ben, can you tell us what it is? And I was like, mm, okay, let me look into that. And then then just fell down the rabbit hole. It just became an obsession. Um, started it, So Ethereum was the one. It was proof of stake that hooked me. And it started consuming all my evenings, weekends. And then eventually, um, one way or another, I got an um, offer of a place at Consensus, which is where I am now. have been for getting on for four years now and landed in the protocol engineering group, which wow. uh, is a wonderful place to be. Style-wise, was this a huge shift? I can imagine it would be. Oh, Do you still wear meant... a suit? Or <laughs> <laughs> Tempting, tempting. Um, it, it was, yeah, everything changed, right? I mean, it was proper midlife crisis stuff. Um, <laughs> nice. so, um, it, yeah, here's, here's a well-kept secret. I mean, b between today, between recording and this podcast going out, I shall turn 52 years old. Congratulations. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure congratulations is, is quite the right <laughs> <laughs> take. But, you know, um, and at that stage, it was kind of comfortable path to retirement or do something crazy. And I'd sort of sat on the sidelines during the dot-com boom. All the people I worked with had gone off and joined startups and, and had the time of their lives. And I'd sort of sat through it being very conventional. And I thought, um, yeah, this is this is the chance. This is the last chance. Let's let's grasp it. And uh, yeah, and everything changes. Um, and I, I love it. Cool. That's awesome. Was 2016 when you actually started at Consensus? No, that that's when I, f yeah, 2016 was when I first became aware of Ethereum and started getting into all that. It was um, a year, year and a half later that I joined mm -hmm. Consensus. Got it. So you would have joined Consensus right during like boom time, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, we were growing phenomenally. So I was employee something like 350. And oh, within wow. six months, we were at about 1100. Um, it was insane. I mean, we were, I spent the first three months just interviewing constantly and uh, grew 
uh, large and yeah, I mean, we we know what happened. I mean, sort of uh, the the bubble burst and uh, yeah. um, we shrank <laughs> down to three hundred three, you know, back to three fifty. I don't know the exact numbers uh, anymore. And yeah, it was a bit tragic. Um, you know, not not e- easy things, but in this volatile market, this sort of thing is inevitable. Totally. Um, we're on a nice upward curve again now so lots of hiring uh, um hiring for 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 my team so we'll talk about what i do in a bit i guess so if anyone's listening and is uh, has java chops get in touch cool writing uh consensus all the way up and then all the way back down must have been a wild uh experience uh looking at it from the outside it seems so interesting it was a fascinating time uh and consensus has changed a lot and that that's an interesting topic all, all of its own but uh we had the motto when I joined and for maybe the first year, year and a half, pretty much the internal motto of the company was everything is an experiment. And we mm-hmm. were trying uh, wild new governance models, internal governance, flat uh, structures, tokenization models for incentivizing all sorts of uh, things, you know, really, really trying to walk the talk. Um, I think it, it can be faulted to an extent that we rarely completed experiments. We started you know, many, many uh, of these things and didn't really push through and see them through to a conclusion, which is a pity, but uh, it could have been a different paradigm. And, and now consensus feels a lot more conventional. It feels much more mm-hmm. like where I came from, which uh, we're in a different era now. And I mean, there have been some winners that have kind of shone through. I feel like there's oh, yeah. some projects that are so, so key to the ecosystem today that come out of there. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, things like um, Gnosis that have spun out uh, ages ago from consensus as well. So uh, there's been plenty over the history. And, you know, there's a school of thought that this is a, a decent approach to uh, innovating and creating value. You you start many experiments, it's evolutionary, right? You kick off many, many experiments, explore the landscape, and then, you know, you've got to kind of kill off your babies, uh, apply a, um, a selection function to it, um, and then you end up with the, the, the strong, the survival uh, of the fittest. And that, that's kind of how it's ended up, though it can be a bit kind of brutal on the journey. Well, uh, you know, I think that in that way, it mirrors like the development of Ethereum in a lot of ways, uh, mm. going through this extremely like grandiose, high concept experimental phase, and then uh, pulling back a little more recently into more uh, directed engineering and actually like delivering on some of the early promise. Yeah, and this is one of my passions, really, is the sort of the how does Ethereum get things done sort of way of looking at things. Um, I like to feel I'm a little bit of a historian or kind of commentator on the distributed development model. And um, it's been really interesting to see how things evolve. And, um, you know, Consensus was not a traditional startup by any means. We were Joe Lubin was was awesome in just funding everything mm. uh, initially and just really bankrolling the whole experiment. Uh, things are different now, but he, he wanted to make a difference, genuine, and really, you know, put his put his money to work in that respect. So that that was great. And you know, I guess we we have the Ethereum Foundation playing a little bit of a similar role, though not not certainly not the same. Uh, this is sort of a side, but is Gitcoin? A originally a, a consensus company or project? Yep, yep. Um, yeah, just spun out. So uh, that's right. Gitcoin, yeah, it was incubated. Uh, that's one of the old, old <laughs> experiments. And uh, yeah, that's wonderful. That's terrific how that's come to maturity. 
So the Zero Knowledge Podcast has had a grant on there for some time. And I've, I've always been kind of amazed with the scope. Like they themselves also almost act like consensus. They have so many experiments. When you go on their right. website, there's like grants and bounties. And I, I mean, I'm not actually following what the latest is. There's now governance. But yeah, there's, there's a lot going on there. It kind of mimics where it comes from. Um, but one of my favorite projects, I think, in the space. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, so let's dive into Ethereum. Because I think that's what you're here for. That's what I'm curious about. James, I feel like you probably are keeping more up to date with all things Ethereum. So I'm glad you're here. I try, but there's an awful lot going on. Uh, I'm going I'm to take a second uh, plug Ben's newsletter, which is uh, one of the best ways to keep it up to date. Ah, uh, Yeah, what is that? Uh, right, yes. Um, I've been writing this thing, What's New in ETH2, uh, for about two and a half years. Um it uh, sometimes feels like, uh, you know, sometimes you regret you started something. <laughs> I don't know if you ever feel like it with the podcast, you know, oh, no, not another one. But uh, <laughs> I've been... I'm pretty used to it now. <laughs> <laughs> so every every two weeks, I try just to summarize what's going on. It started off very technical. It was really aimed at the devs. Nobody else was paying a lot of attention uh, at the time. Um, and uh, as a way just to keep myself honest, you know, force myself to read everything that's out there, yes. keep up to date and just to force function to make sure that I was doing my job. And I write that every two weeks. Uh, you can find it at eth2.news. Uh, and I just publicize it on Twitter. I don't have a mailing list. I'm, I'm far too lazy for any of that stuff. So, you know, <laughs> follow me on Twitter and then you'll find out. Cool. There is an RSS feed that I maintain. Nice. <laughs> That's nice. Okay. So like, kind of let's go back to your story. You're working at Consensus. You're hiring a lot. But then at what point do you start to work really on the what was called at the time the ETH2 roadmap? Mm. Yeah, so uh, I started at Consensus in October 2017. Uh, I spent the first two, three months thinking I was going to be doing enterprise Ethereum stuff, but uh, don't tell my colleagues it bores me witless. <laughs> so I, I just had this, I had this sort of crisis moment, uh, you know, I want to work on mainnet stuff. This is my passion. This is what brought me here. This is where I want to spend 100% of my time. So talked over my colleagues, uh, and they were super supportive. So I had a, a, a mandate. And that was, that was cool. I spent the first couple of years actually building the R&D team. So my, my work was to um, assemble a team of research and development people with short and long term horizons. And that was a joy. I mean, just the opportunity to assemble brilliant people around me was uh, and let them work on, you know, what they felt was important. Uh, and we, you know, we have um, zero knowledge group that built building library, uh, GNARC, which is written in Go to do ZK Snark, uh, implement a language. It's very performant. I've heard of that. That's come up in the zero knowledge chats in the past. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah, that's one of the things. And, and, and moving into more ETH2 scaling stuff. Um, so my colleague, Nicolas Leochon, was an early hire and we got together and we got interested in what does the future of um, the Ethereum protocol itself look like? So uh, we attended this scaling Ethereum event in Taipei in early 2018. It was basically around sharding and what do we do? Uh, and at that point, the, the plan was to do everything on the base chain, right? So Danny Ryan was working on putting the management contract for proof of stake 
uh, on the base chain. So it would just be a standard smart contract. There was a test net for that and so on. And we thought we were going to do sharding the same way. We, we were looking at um, putting a sharding manager contract on the base chain. And so all the conversation at that event was around building out proof of stake and scalability on the base chain mm-hmm. um, using using contracts and the Turing completeness of Ethereum to sort of do everything that was necessary to, to, to make it happen. Uh, that all changed and we can, we can come back to that. But it, it wasn't even ETH2 at that stage. That was the sort of serenity play. Yeah. The we upgrade the main chain using its smart contract capabilities. And then this is the, the final goal. This We're at the end point, the serenity. This is reminding me of another episode that I, I think I did like two years ago with the Prismatic team because it was in that episode where I learned one shift from that original idea, which was the idea of building a ETH2 separate, that was like a separate sharded blockchain, and that there was going to be a way to almost like lock in ETH1 as one of these shards or something like that. Um, I remember there was like this idea that it, actually it was a total new standalone project. Right. Yeah. So you were there during this phase. What, like, what would you call, what is that era of the ETH2 roadmap? <laughs> Yeah, I call it the Serenity years. I mean, that that's was still the, the Serenity uh, the, ones, even when they had yeah. the separate one. Well, I mean, so we're coming to that. So okay, at okay. this point, at this point, we're still on on the original sort of trajectory, uh, and this was how it's supposed to work out. So got interested in that, started working on that, and then around June 2018, we all met in Berlin. And it had basically async, you know, before the meeting, we had realized that this had many flaws that we weren't going to be able to solve. So we basically ripped up the whole thing and started with a blank sheet of paper, you know, a blank HackMD document in mid-2018 and just said, okay, we're going to build a different chain. Uh, we'll, We'll leave Ethereum as is and alongside it. So that's a kind of single track cartway. And we're going to build this super highway alongside it, running on proof of stake. And at some future date, we will migrate all of Ethereum into this mm-hmm. new super highway infrastructure. Um, but they will run as two separate projects for for the time being. Got it. And that was what the Prismatic team had had come right. on the show to tell us about. Right, exactly. So that's the beacon chain. Um, I call I call that the beacon chain era. Got it. Um, so that's uh, uh, that's what we started there, and that was kind of inspired the language and some of the design features was inspired by the Definity blockchain that they they just published their paper using BLS signatures uh, to do committee management and stuff. That was like the that. last and time they had published anything publicly for many right. years until recently. That's right, because uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't think they liked us uh, you know, lifting bids. But <laughs> it immediately went dark. Yeah, I remember that week uh, very well because I was in Berlin for fun and kept running into people and getting pulled into uh, you know design sessions for these things. <laughs> it was a great week. Yeah, yeah, that was fun. It was a good time. Okay, so now we have covered the Beacon Chain era, or we've we're in the Beacon Chain we've era. We've started the Beacon Chain. We've era. started it. What right. what happens in the Beacon Chain era? Yeah, so we should look at some of the motivations for ripping up the the old design. So part of it, and mostly it's around limitations of the base chain. If you are going to, we would have had to have made protocol modifications to favor protocol transactions. So instead of just running smart contract, you know, DeFi stuff, whatever on the base chain, we would have had to start running 
protocol stuff, you know, sharding management and proof of stake management on the base chain, that would have had to have sort of like privileged messages because you can't neglect running the protocol because everything depends on that. And that meant quite a lot of changes on the base chain. You couldn't do it all in a smart contract in short. You know, we would have had to change other things. And also the capacity of the chain was not sufficient. So we could have only sustained a limited number of nodes. We were looking at um, a minimum stake of 1,500 Ether at that point to sort of put a cap on the number of no of validators oh, wow, on okay. the network and that you know that really even at ether prices in those days that was uh going against the spirit of trying to bring in the broadest range of stake as possible oh wait so, 1500 so, per stake that's what somebody would right. have needed to stake oh that was the minimum oh okay okay right, yeah that right. that's pretty high <laughs> yeah okay yeah uh, it was a finger in the air number, but it would have been of that magnitude. Oh, and the other thing was that we realised that the sharding and the proof of stake, the consensus, both relied on having stake, on having slashing, um, and, you know, co- had a lot of common mechanisms, you know, committees to manage. A lot of it was in common. It didn't make sense to run it as two separate protocols. There seemed to be a lot of synergy in bringing them together so we could organize the in order to do sharding we needed committees but it turns out committees are pretty handy for doing the proof of stake and making that manageable as well so we were able to sort of combine a lot of the work and just make the whole thing more coherent and more efficient the shasper roadmap Oh right. yes, right. We, we don't say that. Not in flight <laughs> company. <laughs> it was uh, it was never my favorite uh, name, but uh, you know, sharding plus Casper. Right, exactly. Sharding plus. We we're, we're on Gasper now. You know, we have the mm. uh, the consensus mechanism is Ghost and Casper. So this is Gasper. Mm. Okay. Uh, there's there's even a paper about it. <laughs> actually, yeah, we we actually did a whole episode on mm. Gasper. Two years ago, maybe. All, all of these links, by the way, I'll add in the show notes in case anyone wants to revisit those. Yeah. Yeah. So lo- lots of good stuff just kind of converged uh, at that time. So, you know, some brilliant mind somewhere. I mean, Danny Ryan got involved at that point as a kind of project manager, but without authority in a sense. I mean, sort of only the authority which the people he was managing, that is us teams, kind of you know, allowed him to take. Um, but it turns out that he's very trustworthy and um, is uh, makes very good decisions. And so people trust him a lot. So he's more of a coordinator, but really sparked, you know, made the whole thing happen. Mm-hmm. Um, Justin Drake had come in earlier that year with a lot of new ideas in terms of the cryptography. And I think it sort of catalyzed some new thinking. That really helped. Proto Lambda came a little bit later. That's Diederich. He's just brilliant at algorithmic things and helped really shape the spec and the testing and, you know, work with the client teams to make efficient implementations. So that was good. So, yeah, from that June point, client teams started getting involved. Um, Danny says now it's probably too early. I I, I don't know. But um, the Prism team were already up and running. They were trying to do a sharding implementation. They were running it on Geth. They had a fork of Geth. They pressed on with that for a little while after the sort of beacon chain uh, idea had, had taken hold. But eventually they abandoned that because it, it, it was not going to work uh, based on, on Geth. It had to be a, a fresh implementation. They started Prism at, at that point. Uh, we came in writing code uh, in consensus in my team uh, around October that year, if I recall correctly. This is 2019? Uh, 18. 18 yeah. still, okay. Was this the time, because I remember there was like this explosion of clients. 
Was that yeah. around this time <laughs> where there was like 12? That's right. I, I, it might not have been ever quite that many, but there were at least eight relatively <laughs> okay. serious well, I know efforts. The, the EF funded at least eight. Yeah, and we didn't receive any EF funding for ours, so yeah. that makes nine. <laughs> Wasn't there one that was like named something to do with Kanye? You're, you're thinking of uh, Dean Eigenman, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeath. Yeath. Uh, <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Brilliant. Nice. Yeah, he was uh, riding that in Swift with Eric Tew. Um I, <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, I, th- I think it's been shelved for a while. We'll see. He might revisit it one day. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you know, it's it's interesting to like go back over this because uh, so few people were around and like tapped into this when it was going on. And, uh, you know, me as an outsider uh, and Ben as an insider on this have very different uh, like experiences and good overlap here. My take on all of this happening, like the June 2018 meeting in Berlin and, you know, going on to implementations uh, was basically that uh, relatively competent organizers and uh, coordinators like Ben and like Danny got involved and just completely transformed the whole research process. Mm. Yeah, that, that's kind to say. I it, this tension between research and delivery is is always interesting in in any organisation, um, and it's hard to get right. I mean, a lot of cycles were were quote wasted, whether wasted or not, I'm not sure. But rewriting code, um, I mean, all of the teams have rewritten you know hundreds of thousands of lines of code. Wow. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I'm prison more than most because they started first, but it's all part of hammering out the the protocol. So the protocol was largely built and designed by the EF research team. So it was Danny, Vitalik, uh, Justin, Shawei, Proto Lambda were largely sort of shaping the protocol, but with feedback. You know, everything was in the open. It started life in a HackMD doc, uh, which was horrible. I eventually got migrated to GitHub, had all the comments pulled out and deleted uh, so it was just python code and this is kind of controversial right i mean it it's the spec is python standard python code you can run it uh, with python i mean proto has a um a framework where you can just execute the spec and this is very cool in some ways um because you know, implementers understand this and you can generate the test cases directly from spec, which is uh, super useful for you know any any issues that arise. But there was a process of sort of purifying it, and all of the rationale and everything was kind of ripped out. And uh, I've I've tried to reverse this. Um, I've got a sort of annotated spec thing, which uh, one day I might finish. We we can put a link in the show notes. Vitalik's also done uh, similar as well just to try to recapture i've done a lot of github archaeology on you know why is this constant set to 64 or you know why was this design decision made and not that one or how did this change over the development of the of the Mm -hmm. spec so um just just for so future generations you know for (laughs) when they come to this thing yeah that is the archaeology going but it's the comments you're saying it's the comments that would have given the context and without them a lot of this is lost so you have to kind of refine it yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know what the reasoning uh, was there on that, but it is basically just lines of Python uh, now, which mm-hmm. is not a terrific spec language. I mean, it's not strongly typed, which is something I would prefer to see. It's kind of doesn't lend itself directly to formal analysis. Mm-hmm. So so part of the, the consensus research team, some of the, uh, the, the team I put together are working now on rewriting the spec in Daphne, which is a formal 
specification language, right? And it's it comes from Microsoft. Um, they believe it's one of the. I think they said to me it was one of the three largest Daphne projects that have ever been attempted, and they are proving formally verifying the beacon change specification. And I've got another colleague in in, in R and D, Alex, who is has a transpiler for the spec, so he transpiles it um, into Kotlin, and that helps him to identify issues with typing and things, which mm. which helps. So so there's a lot of work kind of going on off uh, or spinning off the, this spec just to make sure it's all sound. So, but this this is still the beacon chain era. So like now, I'm very curious because if there's been an evolution. Are these things still useful? So the plan was three phases, zero, one, and two, yes. of course. Uh, phase zero, beacon chain. We deliver proof of stake okay. and it just sustains itself. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't, I can't transact with anyone in, on it, but it sustains itself. And we, we built that. We delivered that. It went live last December, December the 1st. It's been running six months and has been almost incident-free. We had a minor wobble a few weeks ago, but apart from that, it has performed superbly. So we proved we can do proof-of-stake under relatively benign circumstances. Now, the plan was then to build sharding, phase one, so data shards to, to bolt them on, and then phase two was to make the shards executable in some way so that you could you know, run sharded smart contracts or whatever. And then finally to, you know, we have this fully functional uh, Ethereum-like chain running with scalability, with proof stake, and then we import all of ETH1 onto that. So phase zero, phase one, phase two, we delivered phase zero. Since then, it's all changed. Okay, okay, that's that's where the change happens. Whoa. <laughs> that's even a um, kind of uh, relatively recent version of the roadmap as well. The phases have gone through a few iterations um, over the years. <laughs> yeah, uh, used to be. I remember the original like seven phase pie in the sky roadmap. Uh, I think the the three phase is much more reasonable. But my recollection of the original three phases was beacon chain sharding and then execution on the shards, uh, with the merge being a separate out of the main roadmap uh, piece. Yeah, I don't think we ever really nailed down. This is part of the problem. We never really nailed down what the later phases would look like. They were, yeah. there, there were teams working on this. So within Consensus, we had the Quilt team who are still around. Um, mm -hmm. uh, they uh, were working on what would execution environments look like in this sharded world, looking at eWASM. I remember a uh, design session in Brooklyn a couple of years ago mm. uh, with execution environments and Right. It, was, it was good. Yeah, a lot of cool ideas, but in the end, I think the design space was just too big. The the, the problem mm -hmm. was too poorly specified. And the overhead of adding a sep second interpreter in is uh, pretty large. Right. I mean, he was, um, uh, despite hopes for it, and a lot of people were looking for it. I, I don't know exactly what the issues were, but there were things around just-in-time execution not necessarily being reliable about not being able to do crypto quite fast enough um, and, and things like that. So uh, maybe these were surmountable issues, maybe they weren't. But in the meantime, other things happened and sort of changed the, the roadmap. So um, Phase zero happened. Now we're talking December 2020. 2020. Right. right. Yeah. Okay. So that happened. And like that amount that you had said, this the minimum amount that you'd have to have in order to be a staker on ETH2 at the time, obviously went down profoundly. 
Um, it yep. went down to 32 ETH. And Correct. people have deployed, like we, we now sit at a time where that has been, like people are, they're locked in. Yeah. They've, so phase zero is out and they've locked in their, their 32 ETH. Correct. Yes, I think people. Yeah, we have a hundred and sixty thousand ish of validators deposits um, as of today, which is uh, over five million ether, uh, whatever ten, depending on the day of the week. You know, ten billion plus dollars worth of ETH staked. It wasn't worth that much when we started this thing. (laughs) But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's something like four and a half percent of all ETH. supply which is a huge vote of confidence i mean you know i'm humbled by this this is and it's not even doing anything yet i mean it's paying out (laughs) rewards but you can't get those rewards until (laughs) we finish the job we you know they're not even accessible so it's a it's a big act of faith um Mm -hmm. and uh, cool so the change that you're talking about the change that happened from those three phases did that change actually happen before december 2019 like when it actually launched was there a new version of these three phases or has the change happened after yeah, it's December 2020, we started the beacon chain. But I think it had been apparent for a, a little while that we weren't landing on good solutions in protocol for executable sharding. So this, how do you do cross-shard transactions? Does every um, movement of Ether involve a cross-shard transaction? Where's the Ether managed? Uh, it was underspecified, as I say, and, and better options came along. Uh, I think. And so that, that that's what changed. So I think there'd been a, an awareness for a while that phase two, as we called it, wasn't really delivering a clear direction. Um, so when an alternative came up, that was grasped. I mean, we, we, we ran with that. Around when did that happen? When And what is it? What is the new alternative? Yeah. Right. So two things happened fairly close together. So um, first of all, um, uh, Vitalik published the roll-up centric roadmap um, yeah. post, which I think he put on the um, Ethereum Magicians forum, which is an interesting place for it. But it's uh, uh, and you know roll-ups, uh, as you well know, have been sort of bubbling away for for quite a while. But after we'd sort of gone down the dead end of Plasma and emerged from that, and data availability was really sort of understood, this vision of a base layer that was pretty dumb but provided lots of data availability and an ecosystem of roll-ups, which actually look quite like executable shards um, to, to a great degree, it kind of solved the problem. It, took, it meant that in protocol, we don't need to solve the problem anymore. We've, we, we can leave that to other people, and they're much less constrained than we are, because if they go wrong, they're not going to break the whole thing. They'll, they might break their roll-up, but they're not going to break the whole protocol. Whereas if we go wrong, we, we break the whole protocol. So that means that out of the protocol, you can do many more experiments. We're back to this kind of evolutionary thing. You can, you're much less constrained. Uh, you can try all sorts of uh, wacky implementations. You can do ZK stuff. You can do optimistic stuff. And that really meant that we no longer had to deliver phase two. We, we could stop thinking about that. It's, it's not our problem anymore. We, we just need to make sure that people can run roll-ups on this thing and, and we're done. So is sharding still in those phases? Is that still on the roadmap? Yeah. So to support this roll-up ecosystem, we need the data availability layer. So sharding now is not executable in protocol. So you can't run sharded smart contracts and so forth in layer one, but we will be providing a huge amount of data availability. So 
It's 64 shards, but each shard is quite fat. Um, I think the current estimate is about two megabytes per second of data availability, which is something like 500 times more than we currently have on, on the Ethereum chain. Can I try to picture what this would actually look like? So if there's the base chain, there's the roll-ups that are sort of like shards. Are there like dummy shards also kind of like next to the roll-ups? Or is it inside the base? It's inside the base. So the shards hang off the beacon chain. So the, the beacon chain is like the conductor for the system. It sets the heartbeat, the tempo for the slots that come every 12 seconds. It coordinates the, the actors in the system. So you've got the committees that vote on various things and so forth. And the shards are managed by the beacon chain. So the beacon chain decides which validators will be validating any given shard at any given time. And the shards checkpoint themselves, we call them the crosslinks, onto the beacon chain so that then you can construct proofs about what the shard did, what its state is at any given time. So that that's in protocol. And the, uh, But we only have one engine. We have just one EVM in this model. And so when you, your roll-up only needs to deal with that one EVM, that one contract environment, it doesn't have to worry about um, where it's running. It's just got this one interface to the whole thing. Hmm. So you kind of, you know, you build the beacon chain and then you build the shards that are coordinated by the beacon chain and then you build the roll-ups that use the shards. Exactly. So the roll-ups to, to be effective, to, to gain their, their speed up and um, be able to get the throughput that's, that's being uh, speculated about, need data. They're data hungry and the data is the shards. So we, we end up with 500 to 1,000 times more data in the sharded world than we have today. So that multiplies the effectiveness of your rollups. Yeah. ZK rollups especially are limited by how much you know data they can just shove onto the chain. Yeah. Mm. Yep. So that's a nice synergy, you see. So we have this we already had this kind of data sharding phase, phase one in the roadmap. And with the rollups, then these two cooperate very nicely. So you can do rollups today and then they get turbocharged when we put sharding in. So that's the the synergy. That's that's the joy of the the design. That's the roll-up side of things, which killed off our execution environments, our executable shards in protocol and simplified things for us. The other thing that happened was this kind of backlash against proof of work and this uh, whole NFTs are killing the planet sort of thing. You know, my my 17-year-old daughter gave me a big lecture about this and I said, I, I, I said I've got good news for you. I'm, I'm, I'm here to, to, to kill proof of work. This is, this is my life's work. So, yeah. <laughs> um, But, you know, this narrative, um, we had this EIP 1559 um, this sort of threat of a miner's revolt, um, which I don't think will come to anything or hasn't come to anything and probably never would. But it just raised the profile that miners aren't always our friends um, mm. and just planted the kind of seeds of doubt for people. And, and for various reasons, it just became expedient to turn off proof of work as soon as we possibly can. You know, this is before kind of Elon Musk started uh, getting involved with all this kind of thing. And, the, you know, the, the momentum against proof of work is just building and building. So there's, there's no going back now. So, And uh, yet another of my colleagues, uh, Mikhail Kalinin, came up with a proposal about a month after Vitalik did his roll-up-centric roadmap, so about October last year, which um, he called the executable beacon chain. And it's super simple. Basically, we'd couple existing ETH1 clients with existing ETH2 clients over a very simple API between them. And we switch off proof of work and we turn on proof of stake. 
So now you're, instead of being driven by the proof of work cadence, the ETH1 client, we're calling it the execution engine, is driven by the beacon chain cadence. And he came up with a beautiful, clean design for this. And we realized we could implement it very straightforwardly. Um, there's barely any research and development to do and could deliver proof of stake very quickly. So that's that's the current trajectory. Mm-hmm. That's very exciting. Is that phase two now, though? Is this? Yeah, we don't talk about phases anymore. That, that <laughs> Do we just <laughs> phases are behind yeah. us? Okay. Well, I, I think that's really interesting. Is because we essentially like had this huge expansion of seven original phases, and then we progressively narrowed it to the things that are actually valuable and worth doing. And uh, you know, now we've moved past phases, and I think where we are is we have the beacon chain, and we just want to add shards and the merge. Uh, and that's everything that's left to do. And they're not dependent on each other. Right, right. So there is a degree of independence. We've talked about the ordering. Do we do sharding first? Do we do a proof of stake first? And uh, in principle, we could do it either way. The sort of wins, the, uh, the cultural wins are pushing us to do proof of stake first. I felt that maybe sharding might have been a better choice. My, my, my concern is almost nobody that's been working in what we've called the ETH2 space till now has had ETH1 experience um, with their sort of... Oh. And so mm-hmm. I, my team's a bit of an exception. We've got a couple of devs in the team who worked on Basu, our mainnet client, for, for a few years. So, But how slowly things move within the um, Ethereum world, the all-core devs meetings and so forth, and just the... And, and, you know, perhaps rightly, because it's guardian of a huge amount of value and, and you don't want to break anything. And uh, we, we've had the luxury of moving fast um, without, you know, many constraints on the uh, ETH2 side of things. But I think we're going to hit a bit of a brick wall now when we've done this merge. Um, we, and we can talk about mechanics of the merge when we, we've kind of brought ETH1 and ETH2 together and things are going to slow to a crawl. So my concern was if we don't do sharding first, it's going to take years, but we'll we'll see. We'll see. We can we can add it without breaking anything, I think. So, um, you know, we can test it separately. You know, speaking of all core dev calls, you know, I do see Danny Ryan there pretty regularly and the merge is a very frequent topic. Uh, are you, you know, as a as an ETH2 team, are you optimistic that the merge is going to happen later this year? I'm optimistic it's going to happen. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen later this year. Uh, that would be nice. And I think, you know, that meme, that sort of uh, that thing about it happening this year is an illustration of what I, what I just said, right? Uh, that came from a poll of ETH2 developers that Justin Drake ran. And we're, we're all gung-ho and, yeah, this, we move at the speed of light. But, you know, once we crash into the Ethereum 1 world, things move more slowly and more cautiously and quite rightly. In my experience, Peter and Martin take their responsibilities to the network extremely seriously. Yeah, absolutely, and and it's got to be that way. And you know, I'm I'm kidding a little bit about uh, about the 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 uh, caution, but it, it is absolutely necessary. But I think a slightly and um, a different world from what we've been used to. Definitely. So now let's dive into the merge. Because, I mean, I've seen it pop up, but I haven't dug into it yet. And I'm super curious to hear what's the plan. What's, what is the plan <laughs> for this merge that probably won't happen this year, but will happen? <laughs> it, it will happen. And I, uh, early next year is the kind of expectation. Read that as, as you will. I'm not going to put a date on it. Um, I think, didn't Vitalik go on Lex Friedman and say this? So now it's locked in podcast history. Vitalik is a notorious optimist, though. 
Vitalik's also not the one on the hook for delivering the software. Well, quite, quite. Um, so there's work to do on the uh, what we've called the ETH2 side uh, up to now. So this is we're rebranding the uh, ETH2 clients as consensus clients. We're just running the proof of stake operation. So that, that's Teku, which is my client, and Prism and Lighthouse and Nimbus. So are there four now? Yeah, there are four that are functional on the mainnet now. Uh, Lodestar are doing great work. So that's come from Chainsafe. Um, they're writing in TypeScript and JavaScript. And I'm not sure if they plan to be a fully functional mainnet client. I, I, I doubt it. But they, they, they want to run light clients mm. and provide a lot of infrastructure stuff, which is, which is uh, great. Yeah, super good. So four currently active mainnet clients on the consensus side, proof of stake consensus side. And then you've got the the cluster of uh, ETH1 clients, which we're rebranding execution clients um, mm. on on that side. So Geth, obviously, Besu, which is the consensus's client, and uh, Nethermind, and uh, Eragon, I think, if that's right. That's the open <laughs> Ethereum rebranded once more, or rewritten? Mm, no, Eragon is Turbo Geth rebranded. Oh, um, right. What happened to open, open Ethereum? Is that anywhere, or...? In short, it's now been deprecated, and um, Gnosis has adopted mm-hmm. uh, Eragon, and will be supporting that and and putting resources into that going forward. Which is unfortunate because I would love a high quality Rust client. I, I think Eragon is is in multiple languages and is modular, and you can. Uh, this is part of its value proposition. Uh, it is very modular. Mm. So we've got uh, work to do on both sides, uh, but it's relatively lightweight work. So. The ETH1 side will be responsible for all transaction management. So that's the execution layer. So it retains the transaction gossip, the mempools that it currently has, uh, the discovery mechanisms that it currently has, and its own networking protocol and everything remains untouched. Um, The only thing that significantly changes is that we take out the proof of work module uh, from that client, obviously. And then we put in an API so that the execution client will produce and will insert blocks into its block tree uh, on demand. Hmm. So now if we go over to the proof of stake side, so I'm on the beacon chain, I'm running Teku, for example, uh, when it's my turn to produce a block, so um, I get selected by the Randall process that we have to, to produce a block for the network, then I will ask my attached execution node, give me a block. And it will hand over a block and I will just put that block as is into my beacon chain block. And that gets gossiped on the beacon chain side. Where, I know this is going to be a bit strange, but like, where's the EVM? Is that still back on the first version? Right, exactly. So the state management, the transaction management, the execution of transactions all happens on the execution client, hence the name, uh, which is the old ETH1 clients uh, there. So, you know, transitioning the nomenclature is a bit painful because you always have to say, yeah, just so people get the idea, ETH1, execution, whatever. But yeah, that that stays there. So we don't don't need to touch that, which is the the beauty of this, this proposal. Yeah. To make it a little like more concrete, I think under this proposal, when you're running the Ethereum chain, you'll run Geth, uh, which will manage the EVM and all the normal EVM transactions. And you will also run Teku at the same time. Uh, and Geth and Teku will coordinate between themselves to produce blocks or to validate blocks. 
Yeah, exactly right. So you're making a very like strict separation between the execution, the EVM, and the consensus part, which will be run by another program entirely. Yeah, yeah, it's very clean. And this has so many advantages. First of all, it it retains all the work that's already been done. We're, we're really not throwing anything away except for the proof of work uh, mechanism. It means that all of the application layer stuff still talks to their ETH1 execution node as they always have. Uh, we might come to some of the challenges, but by and large, uh, almost everything remains exactly uh, as it always has. So minimal, if any, changes to, to dApps and um, uh, applications and so forth. How do the two sides of these, like, I know you don't want to use the term ETH1, ETH2, but I haven't picked up the new <laughs> term yet. But like, how do they talk to each other exactly? So there's an RPC interface of some sort um, between the two. And this is going to be something we'll be talking about for a year. I, I just joke with Mikhail, you know, uh, he's trying to <laughs> kind of nail down. Are we doing JSON RPC? Are we doing, you know, what, what does it look like? And this is the kind of thing that devs would love to bike shit about forever. But okay. basically, it's just got a couple of endpoints. One is um, give me a block. So the beacon chain says to the ETH1 node, the execution node, give me a block. And... Uh, when it's its turn to propose it. And the other one is insert this block. So I'm a proof of stake node on the beacon chain. I receive a block over the network. I extract the execution part of that and I, I hand it over to my attached ETH1 node so it can insert it into its block tree and update its state. This is really nice because you know making the separation between the execution client and the consensus client means that you can swap out either side um, whenever you need to. Hypothetically, if when we want to add sharding, this is so much easier because we can swap out the consensus client because there is this strict separation between them. Mm. Right. And we are trying to make the interfaces as standardized as possible so that you can mix and match execution and consensus clients and so forth. So, yeah, uh, try not to think too far into the future. What what might happen? <laughs> That's one way to do your head in in, in this space. But uh, <laughs> yeah, we're trying not to close off any options. I mean, that's that's a lot uh, a big part of the goal. I want to go back to the roll up centric view and what like mm. what does this new scenario mean for roll up? Like, what is it then doing? Is it interacting with both of these? Because we talked about the two the two sides the execution chain and consensus chain talking to each other. But like, would a ZK rollup have to talk to both? So the uh, smart contract execution is all happening on the execution side. So yeah. that's on your old ETH1 client. And that's all that your rollup would need to speak to um, in order to do its work. When we have sharding in place, as I mentioned, uh, the EVM will have to be made aware of those shards. Mm. And hence the rollup will have to become aware of those shards. I don't know what that looks like yet. Uh, we haven't uh, specked that out as far as I know. I think it's still really fuzzy for me as well. Um, you know, it seems like the rollup will need access to the shard data, which means there's probably some crosstalk between the two clients again, uh, some extension to the client interface, but I don't think we have any idea what it looks like. Yeah, something we're working on at the moment is light client protocols. So um, part of this Altair upgrade, uh, hard fork in the old lingo, uh, we're doing on the beacon chain in a couple of months, is to put in infrastructure that makes it very easy to sync up a light client. So in a sharded world, by definition, you don't want to be following all the shards. Otherwise, you, you gained nothing, right? So 
the idea is to make it as easy as possible to get information about what's happening on shards that you're not directly attached to or directly following uh, all of the activity on. So this light client protocol becomes very important. And then, you know, you gain some information, some data over, over the light client network. You want to prove that it is correct. So you, know, you, you execute a Merkle proof based on data that the EVM has access to. And then you know that you've, you've got the correct data. That, that's shared out of band, but you can verify it with data that's available in band. Mm-hmm. Let's bring it back to the merge itself. What will the process actually look like? Right. So at the moment, stakers run an ETH2 client and an ETH1 client alongside each other. The ETH1 client only provides uh, data about the deposits that have been made. So it's not. there's only a very, very loose one-way coupling between uh, the, the clients at the moment. Now, before the merge, uh, which dates TBD early next year, stakers will need to update their clients uh, to be merge compatible. And uh, there will be a mechanism by which at a certain difficulty on the network, the ETH1 client will stop following proof of work and for its very next block will follow the beacon chain instead. Is difficulty in this context difficulty of proof of work? Correct. Yeah. And honestly speaking, I'm a bit hazy on the reasons for choosing difficulty. But in this context, it's uh, um, there is a good rationale for it. But I, I, I don't recall the details on that. So okay. I'll put my hand up there. But um, the, the idea is that we specify a network difficulty, a proof of work hashing difficulty. And at that when that is hit, then uh, that's a total difficulty from the beginning of the chain, not, not accumulated a- difficulty. Yeah, not a target. Right, right. So when we hit that, then for the very next block, the ETH1 client doesn't listen to proof of work anymore. It listens to the beacon chain. And the whole thing is seamless. I mean, it's beautiful. We all drink champagne and and rejoice. (laughs) Wow. So it's almost like you, you upgrade out the consensus of the execution chain, and then you turn on the other one. Yeah, so the beacon chain is is always running. It's always there. It's doing its duty. And the proof of work will be running as well. And it's the ETH1 client triggers it and just flips over from proof of work to proof of stake at that point. Stops listening to the one, starts listening to the other. Will all operators have to run both nodes forever? Like, are they running two clients then at the same time? Yes, basically. Um, You could probably at this stage get away with having them separated or having a um, an ETH1 client serving several ETH2 nodes or, or, or something like that. However, we are very keen on data availability guarantees. And that means ETH1 data as well as uh, you know, the data that's available on the execution client. So they need to be more and more tightly coupled as as we as we go down that route. And uh, running two clients may sound like a lot, but I think for anyone running a node, it's very normal. Processes talk to each other all the time. This mm. isn't like big overhead. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And stakers, you know, good stakers, stakers not like me are already running two clients. I mean, I, I use Inf- Infura for my ETH1 data, but uh, that's, <laughs> that's my other dirty secret. But <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Okay, I want to go back to the difficulty thing for a second because now it's a brain teaser. I think that the reason to do accumulated difficulty, it is 
is because it is the thing that is uh, least possible for a uh, cabal of miners to influence. Mm. Right. And that's one of the big risks um, around the merge is minor behavior at that point. You know, in, in our favor, everyone knows that Ethereum is moving to proof of stake. You know, I, I was aware of it five years ago. And yeah, it's taken a while, but it's not, you know, it's not kind of controversial. We're not changing the mm. rules. Uh, <laughs> I also think that Ethereum kind of uh, uses miners as a boogeyman way too much. In practice, we've never seen a minor cabal impact any uh, major chain. Yeah, yeah, this is fair. But uh, I am hoping it will be smooth. But yeah. um, we need to take reasonable precautions against the likely scenarios or even unlikely ones that, that, that might play out. Yeah. And uh, it's, you know, it's good to just, you know, select the thing that is most difficult to manipulate to just head off any possibilities. Yeah, yeah. So I think this leads us to today. We know now the plan of today. Is there anything that we can look forward to in the future? Like, is there anything you're looking at? I know the roadmap is very different now. There seems like there's one big, I guess there's a few upgrades and then there's one big thing, which is this merge. But um, yeah, what, what, do you, what do you see coming down the line? The in really interesting thing about this this whole thing is we've almost gone back to the sort of serenity plan of upgrading the ETH1 chain in place. And that's one reason why this ETH2 naming is sort of being deprecated a bit, because we're, it's not ETH2.0 building a whole new chain and, and then throwing away the old one anymore. It's like bringing in incremental upgrades to the existing Ethereum chain. So kind of short and, and midterm, we, we deliver the merge, so that gets uh, Ethereum onto proof of stake. Uh, we deliver sh data sharding. That's pretty well specced at the moment. Implementations of that are just starting now, um, and we're, we're testing it out the design. And then there's this whole, you, you might have seen Vitalik's kind of massive diagram with boxes everywhere and arrows going everywhere of, of you know, his, his mental model of Ethereum's future. Um, and there's all sorts of things on there around bringing zero knowledge proofs in, in protocol to simplify many things, um, uh, make ourselves a bit more future-proof, post-quantum, all of that kind of thing. Just loads and loads of things going on. This is one of Ethereum's things. Uh, we are always innovating and that's, that's kind of one of the things I really love about it um, and philosophically sets us apart from certain other blockchains. But um, we didn't go into that. Are there some upgrades that have to happen on the network before all of this? Like, is, are there other things kind of planned this year? Yeah, so uh, we'll do the merge likely early next year. Um, so this year we've got this Altair upgrade, which is introducing uh, the light client protocol so that light clients can sync up uh, efficiently. And as we mentioned, that will be an important part of, of the sharded world. And we've got some accounting reforms going in there just to lighten the load on clients and make some things more reliable and, and so on. We've got a couple of consensus things. Some sort of theoretical attacks have been outlined in a couple of papers, which while exceedingly unlikely, would be nice to just deal with so we never have to talk about it again. They, they will probably follow. They're, they're sort of fork choice rule changes, so we can do that at any point. We, we don't need to do it in a hard fork. So so th those things will happen this year. And then early next year, uh, with a fair wind, we will get the merge done. We will have a clean-up fork you know, two to three months after that. We will have the famous moment where we enable... Uh, withdrawals of people's stake <laughs> so you can get your rewards out and your and your stake you'll be able to stop validating if you wish and uh yeah long-awaited 
uh, moment. So that will just be sort of paying back some technical debts, you know, which which we incur as a result of getting the the, the move to proof of stake done early, uh, and then sharding. So, you know, Ben, we, we've chatted on and off for a few years, and uh, you, you know that I have a lot of opinions on the process and on ETH2. Do you have any insider perspective on all of this? I'd love to hear a bit more about all the people involved and how it all came together. It, it's a really interesting question when I sort of reflect on uh, gently quite quite a lot, because it is kind of miraculous to me, right? I mean, it, it, what... Are, what are the ingredients that have made this, in my view, so successful? I know that everyone will agree it's, it's hugely successful. And I think there are a number of factors. Uh, the openness, you know, we are trying as hard as we can to do everything in the open, involving client teams now funded to a large extent by the Ethereum Foundation, not, not ours, but uh, in many cases yet autonomous, you know, on a, on a very loose rein. Uh, ha- has definitely helped make doing the spec developments, um, broadcasting our calls that we do, doing all of that in the open d- is is kind of winsome. It's attractive. People, smart people, want to get involved with this, and we see this time and time again when we've had need. People have come in, and you know there are people like Proto Lambda who just kind of threw himself into it. There's kind of Barnabé at the uh, Ethereum Foundation who's really digging down into proving things about how the protocol's working, and it. I think smart people are attracted by this and uh, the challenges and the freedom and the possibilities. And somehow it kind of comes together and it's not the most beautiful or elegant and uh, we don't have Gantt charts and, you know, deliverables and milestones, but it works. Uh, We built this beacon chain and delivered it. It was 2018 to 2020, two and a half years from nothing. I mean, it was a it was literally a blank document, and that might sound like a long t- time, but that's the whole R and D and protocol development, as well as the implementations and productization. And we had viable things a year before we actually went live. It took a year to make do the productization and the hardening and the security audits and and all of that stuff. So that's incredibly fast. I mean, you know, compared to the the old world I come from, that's amazing to me. So, yeah, that, that's some of the, the, the wherewithal. I think, you know, Danny Ryan is a magician. He's just superb at coordinating people and, and just making sure people know what they need to do, you know, stepping back when, when he needs to, but stepping in when he needs to. And I think a large part of the kind of success of the outcomes is is, is down to him as well. Yeah, I mean, what else? Uh, what else, James? Um, what are your observations? You know, I, I have an incredibly high opinion of Danny Ryan as well. Uh, I think that uh, when he came in and started working marks the real like turnaround in this process. I, I won't disagree. Mm. A few weeks ago, Tarun was on the show as a co-host and sort of made a comment around as Ethereum and these these systems are kind of more and more developed, they start to look a little bit like Polkadot. I find it very controversial that he said it, but I am curious what what you make of a statement like that, if you're seeing anything like that. It's an interesting observation, and I've heard it um, elsewhere as well. I'm not really well-versed in in Bogdot these days, but from my limited understanding, there are definite similarities in the way things are emerging with the the, the shards coordinated by the base chain and um, the rather the roll-ups, I should say, uh, coordinated by the the EVM and so forth, like, you know, parachains and so on and so on. Mm. So 
you know, it may not be an accident. I mean, for for one thing, you know, Vitalik and uh, Gav worked together for a long time, and you know, a lot of the ideas had their genesis back in 2014 totally. time frame. Um, a lot of the sort of early work was was done then, and it also might be the case that. You know, there aren't that many ways to solve this problem. I mean, it could be that designs converge because they're decent designs to to, to solve the problem. But yeah, it's it's definitely interesting. Cool. All right, Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show and going on this journey with us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you both. Uh, I've absolutely loved it. Thanks so much for coming. It's always a pleasure to see you. Uh, I still have fond memories of that dinner in Osaka. <laughs> yeah, terrific. And I'm still trying to figure out whether you do, in fact, have the, the, the best hair in crypto. Um, I'm, I'm going to ponder that one a little longer. <laughs> Very cool. All right. Thanks again. And thanks to the podcast producer, Andre, the podcast editor, Henrik, and to our listeners. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.